Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids. What's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. For years, I went to a psychotherapist just three doors down from a funeral parlor. I got to tell you, passing by mourners on my way to therapy really put me in the right headspace to you know, think about what I wanted my own life to add up to. I highly recommend choosing a psychotherapist with an office next to a funeral parlor. Now let's travel back in time, nearly a century ago, to Manhattan's Upper West Side. It's a sweltering late summer day, and we're standing in front of the Frank E. Campbell Funeral Chapel, then located at Broadway and 66th Street. Over the next hundred years, Campbell's will serve as the funeral home for legends from Judy Garland to Jackie O to the notorious B.I.G. But they won't draw the crowds seen on Tuesday, August 24th, 1926, when the sidewalks are overflowing with a crowd of some 30,000 mourners. They've all gathered here to catch a final glimpse of a fallen movie star. Arguably the first male sex symbol of the silver screen. He was in great physical shape. And you see those rippling muscles in his arms. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of him doing his workout when he's wearing pretty much just his skivvies. Oh, okay. I'll check those out. I haven't seen those. Oh, you need to see that. He was labeled the great lover. Or even more indelibly, the Latin lover. He would hold you in his arms if you were a beautiful woman and kiss you passionately and brutally. (laughs) Can somebody turn down the thermostat in here? Because I'm feeling hot. No one burned up the screen like Rudolph Valentino, driving women across the planet wild in a way that no one had before him. Enough to leave a permanent mark on the world that he suddenly left behind at the tender age of 31. Along Broadway, a procession of dark cars carries Valentino's rose-covered bronze and silver coffin to the chapel. The crowd grows unruly, a scene recreated in the 1977 film Valentino. Rain is falling, but instead of cooling things off, the crowd explodes into a riot. The mourners become a mob, pushing, punching, fighting their way to get into the funeral parlor. The surging crowd pushes a line of policemen, causing the windows of the chapel to shatter. Mounted police officers try to quell the riot, which lasts for hours. Over a hundred are hurt. An improvised emergency room is set up inside the funeral chapel, with doctors and nurses ministering to the many injured. The streets are covered in debris. 
A young woman drenched from head to toe, ambles in her stockinged feet, weeping, I must see him. I must see him. But how did we get here? How did Rudolph Valentino reach such dizzying heights? Why all of this howling, hysterical sorrow? And what exactly is a Latin lover? He's a handsome Latin with an accent. He's the end. The living end. <laughs> of course, there would be many rivals for Valentino's Latin lover crown. I was ruined by Raymond Navarro. Raymond Navarro? The movie star? We'll tell their stories and talk to Latin lover scion Lorenzo Lamas. Dad was the original Latin dragon. He was the original Lothario of fame and notoriety. And his romances are legendary. Can you tell me something, Fernando? You have a terrible reputation. Do you still have a lot of fooling around to do? And we'll tell you how the Latin lover vanished from Hollywood just as suddenly as he had appeared. And then in 1960, no foreign man is allowed to play a leading role. Like if we had an operation of something. Yeah. From CBS Sunday Morning and iHeart, I'm Moraka, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, Rudolph Valentino, Ramon Navarro, and a tale of two llamas. October 8th, 1982, the death of the Latin lover. World War I ended in 1918, and its conclusion ushered in the beginning of the sexual revolution. Wait a minute, the sexual revolution? That happened in the 1960s, didn't it? Well, there actually was an earlier sexual revolution in the 1920s. Out of the devastation of World War I emerged a new American woman with a new sense of sexual freedom, a modern woman. Women had finally won the right to vote and were joining the workforce in unprecedented numbers. The Great War had made American women more aware of the world at large. And these women were going to the movies. Approximately 83% of moviegoers were women. Enter Rudolph Valentino, our first Latin lover of the silver screen. Valentino was born Rodolfo Pietro Filiberto Raffaele Guglielmi on May 6, 1895, in the province of Toronto in southern Italy. What was the appeal of Valentino? Well, he was handsome. He was elegant. He was a dynamite dancer. I mean, he was a professional dancer before he became an actor. I'm talking to Emily Wardis Leiter, author of Dark Lover, The Life and Death of Rudolph Valentino. It, try to ignore the noise in the background. And if you've seen him dance on screen, he was so graceful and dynamic as, as a performer. Emily, are you uh, sorry? Are you cooking there? My husband is getting ready for his lunch. Oh, what is he? What is he making? Salad. Okay. All right. Could he just be a little quieter with the tongs? <laughs> oh. 
The Italian economy collapsed after World War I, and Rodolfo emigrated alone to America, arriving at Ellis Island at the age of 18. He first made his living as what was known as a taxi dancer. He was doing that pretty much from the time he was right off the boat in New York. Taxi dancers worked in dance halls, charging patrons a dime for a dance, a profession immortalized by the Rogers and Hart song, Ten Cents a Dance. And was that his primary ambition? Was that sort of the end goal, to be a dancer? No, it was not his ambition at all. He wanted respect. But working as a taxi dancer was seen as sort of uh, gigolo adjacent. Now that's not high prestige. All that you need is a ticket. Come on, big boy, ten cents a dance. At 23, Rodolfo headed to Hollywood and adopted the much more marquee-friendly name, Rudolph Valentino. He played bit parts in various B-movies, often as criminals and lowlifes, until he was discovered by June Mathis, one of the most successful women in early Hollywood. A power in her own right. I think most people would be surprised at the power that several women had in Hollywood during the silent film era. Women were a force in the era of silent films. They only lost power later. (laughs) And they did, of course. Mathis was a screenwriter and producer, ultimately being credited on more than 110 films. And she picked him out, and she gets the credit for being the person who discovered Rudolph Valentino. Oh, if you're intrigued by unsung powerful women in Hollywood's earliest days, check out our season one episode, Forgotten Forerunners, which features silent film trailblazer Lois Weber. Okay. So there are no taped interviews of June Mathis, but there's this ABC made-for-TV movie from 1975 called The Legend of Valentino, and it stars the incomparable Suzanne Plachette as June Mathis. Here she is arguing with Metro Studio executives over whether or not to cast Valentino in her next big movie. Photographs like a foreigner. Foreigners have to play heavies. American women won't trust them. They trust American men? They marry them, don't they? Who's talking about marriage? I'm talking about sex. <laughs> Sam, this is 1920. And we've just been through a world war. Women are wearing one-piece bathing suits. They're drinking bathtub gin. They're dancing the black bottom. Not with me. Sam, the only thing that hasn't changed is the screen. I mean, we are still pretending that sex was invented by Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Now, now why can't we be closer to reality? June Mathis had seen Valentino dance. She knew he had it. I mean, women are bored. They're restless. They're tired of being protected, and American men are dull. Now, by the early 1920s, Americans had been going to the movies for more than a decade. But the typical leading man of the day was square-jawed, all-American, unassailably moral. Think the swashbuckling Douglas Fairbanks. Very Protestant, mm-hmm. hair parted, white shirt, suit. We're not talking menace here. We're talking a gentleman. A gentleman. Was he demonstrative with women? There wasn't much heat. But Douglas Fairbanks was certainly very exciting. Not as a lover on screen. He was an athlete, not such a good kisser. 
But for decades, Italian immigrants had been smeared in newspapers as gangsters, which is also the only way they showed up in movies. The Emergency Quota Act of 1921 codified this bigotry by drastically limiting the number of people coming in from Southern and Eastern Europe. There was a special prejudice against Italian immigrants. They were just one step above being black. In the eyes of filmmakers and society at large. White audiences. But June Mathis envisioned an alternative. Bear in mind, this was a full century before Me Too. I mean, if we're going to buy a dream, we're going to buy the one about the handsome foreigner who drags us into his bed against our will. You'd like that? Oh, I'd love that, Sam. And so would your wife. Mathis got her way and cast Valentino in her film, 1921's The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And one scene in that film came to define Valentino for his entire career, the tango scene. Well, it starts with menace, which used to be and maybe still is considered sexy. Early on in the silent film, Valentino's character Julio is drinking in a crowded, divey Argentine bar wearing a gaucho outfit, wide, flat-brimmed hat with tassels and a chin strap, buttoned-up, blousy shirt. A man and woman are dancing a jaunty tango. Valentino strides up and taps the man on the shoulder. Never removing his lit cigarette, he asks to cut in. Valentino exchanges a smile and wink with the saucy senorita. The man, however, refuses. Valentino's eyes widen with fury. He then throws the man aside and beats him. And he breaks in and grabs the woman quite brutally and then tangles off with her. So there is menace about to knock you out if you don't hand over the woman. And that was sexy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Okay, these movies have not aged well, but Valentino's on-screen persona was an exotic fantasy that women of the era bought into in a big way. The famous tango scene only lasted a total of four minutes, but it had a seismic impact. Is this the scene that really makes him a superstar? In my opinion, yes, but the chic took over and became better known. And that was a real craze. Valentino's first leading man role came that same year in The Chic, the movie adaptation of the steamy, hugely popular romance novel The Chic, which was basically the Fifty Shades of Grey of its day. This was the racy debut of 39-year-old British novelist E.M. Hull, a.k.a. Edith Maud Hull. The book inspired a chart-topping hit called The Chic of Araby. Crowds went absolutely wild for Valentino as a love-struck but brutal Arab sheik who melts the heart of a captive modern woman. Sheik mania swept the world. Oh, and I must see the house where Rudolph Valentino lived. Oh, I'll never forget him in the sheik. I'm the sheik of Arab. <laughs> Your love belongs to me. It also inspired a string of chic rip-off movies. 
and it continued to press the tension between sex and violence that's an element in some fantasy romance, a tension that Valentino would exploit in role after role. And yet, now you also wrote about a vulnerable, wounded quality that Valentino had. He has that in life, and he has it on the screen, too, yes. I think it's about his own emotional availability and vulnerability. You could see it in his face. That softer side was an essential part of his appeal. He would kiss the back of women's hands. He would bow. Flourishes of chivalry that American women weren't used to seeing in American men. His courtesy, his focus, his intensity. He would make you feel like you were the only woman in the world while he was kissing you anyhow. And this gets to the heart of what made Valentino so different from the leading men who came before. He put the woman front and center. Very important. The woman is central. It's all about adoring the woman. And women adored him right back, sneaking onto trains, hiding in bathrooms just for a chance to get close to him. One Boston headline read, 10,000 girls mob world's greatest kisser. Women of all ages created the matinee idol. What is Bill doing back there? Is he pounding veal? Bill is pounding... uh, (laughs) Tell me the truth. Is all this talk about Valentino making him jealous? No, he wants his lunch. But out of the public eye, Rudy was unlucky in love and bad with money. He endured two unhappy marriages and made poor business decisions. Leapfrogging from studio to studio, Valentino burned bridges and lost allies and friends in the process, including his first champion, June Mathis. Newspapers soon took to mocking the star as Vaselino because of his slicked back hair. Now, we've talked plenty about how women reacted to Valentino. Indeed, Valentino was a man made by women. But how did most American men react to him? With suspicion. A, he was a foreigner. B, he didn't have exactly white complexion. He had an olive complexion, which made him suspect. And C, the wife, girlfriend, mother liked him too much. So that was a threat. Valentino knew that he was beautiful. He dressed to thrill. He wore jewelry, spats over his shoes, lemon yellow gloves with his impeccably tailored suits. Think David Bowie meets Harry Styles. Enter the infamous pink powder puff attack. That was such a smear. That was a smear job. But it got a lot of press. The pink powder puff attack. They attacked his masculinity totally without basis. In July 1926, an anonymous Chicago Tribune editorial alleged that the city's new Aragon Ballroom had installed a pink powder puff vending machine in the men's washroom, encouraging men to powder their noses. And it squarely blamed Valentino. Without saying it, the editorial accused Valentino of being gay. Valentino challenged the anonymous author first to a duel of honor and then to a boxing match. But before anonymous could come forward, it was too late.
complaining of terrible abdominal pains, Valentino was given an emergency double operation for acute appendicitis and perforated gastric ulcers. The resulting sepsis took his life after a week. There's a new star in heaven tonight That will never fade from our sight Valentino died at 12.10 p.m. on Monday, August 23rd, 1926. This tribute song was written by Vernon Dahlhardt just 10 days after Valentino perished. The Guardian newspaper wrote, No monarch or war hero ever aroused more sympathetic public interest anywhere than Valentino during the illness which ended fatally today. The press was flooded with reports of fainting women and suicide attempts. 27-year-old actress Peggy Scott took her life in London by poison. 20-year-old Angelina Celestina, mother of two, took poison and shot herself in the Bowery. She was rescued and briefly institutionalized. Valentino received two separate funerals, the first in New York with its riots and mayhem. Then his body was transported cross-country via railroad to California. At several stops, love-struck fans lay down on the tracks, delaying the train's progress to Valentino's final resting place in Hollywood. Well... Nobody in this country had seen anything like it since the death of Abraham Lincoln. Now, that is really something else. You know, when Lincoln died, his body was carried in a famous train ride, and people gathered along the tracks in mourning and tribute. And the same thing happened when Valentino died. The more sensationalized reactions to Valentino's death became part of the national consciousness for decades afterwards, as evidenced by this brief aside in Billy Wilder's comedy, Some Like It Hot. How about Rosemary Schultz? She slashed her wrist when Valentino died. Well, we might as well all slash our wrists unless we round up two dames by this evening. Valentino is buried next to June Mathis, who out of compassion allowed Valentino to be entombed in her crypt at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. His estate couldn't afford to bury him. There they rest, side by side. Valentino, goodbye. But way up in the sky, there's a new star in heaven Within three years of his death, silent movies were officially finished. Would Valentino have made it in talkies? Well, here's a rare recording of him singing. Let's have a quick listen and wonder at what might have been. But it was the singing voice of our next Latin lover, which would allow him to make the jump to talkies.
Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life? That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ramon Novar. My real name is Samaniego. José Ramón Gil Samaniego was born on February 6, 1899 in Durango, Mexico. His large family was wealthy and influential and lost everything in the Mexican Revolution. 17-year-old José Ramón moved to Los Angeles, where he supported his family by working as a busboy, a nude model, and a movie extra. He dreamed of singing opera. And just as Valentino had, Samaniego simplified his name to Ramon Navarro, although it was much more frequently pronounced Ramon Navarro. Superstardom came with the 1925 silent version of Ben-Hur. Now, this was 34 years before Charlton Heston's Panavision extravaganza, Ben-Hur. Tell you the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. But the earlier version was just as epic, the most expensive movie of its time. And it was written by none other than June Mathis. Mathis desperately wanted Valentino for the title role. But Valentino was, at the time, on the outs with the studio. Navarro got the lead. The world had a new Latin lover, the first Mexican actor to make it in Hollywood. Navarro could dance, and he could act. He was funny, and this was key to his success in talkies. He could sing. I should like to hear you sing. (laughs) That's easy. I sing almost anywhere without any encouragement. Here he is singing the Pagan Love Song from the 1929 Polynesian romance, The Pagan. And here he is as a romantic and reckless Napoleonic French officer in Devil May Care. And here he is crooning alongside fledgling movie soprano and future star Jeanette MacDonald in MGM's The Cat and the Fiddle. Okay, so maybe that pigeon-like warbling is not to our current tastes, but save your breadcrumbs. Navarro's operetta style of singing was all the rage at the time. Navarro had only one accent for all of his speaking roles. Whether he was playing an Egyptian, Belgian, or Austrian, he always spoke with his natural, lilting Mexican accent. Here he is as a Russian, just go with it, wooing the world-weary Swedish screen siren Greta Garbo in Matahari. You're a strange boy who loves you. Do you? I love you as one adores sacred things. What sacred things? God. Country, honor, you. 
Now, Navarro was not the sex god that Valentino evoked on screen. He was short, with a smallish mouth. Lola. And while he was definitely athletic, he was also slightly pudgy. Lola. Navarro's seduction technique? Lolita. Even in the films where he played a cad? Come on, open the door. Was playful, naughty, innocent. Oh, you would come back, wouldn't you, you little fool? <laughs> In a word, Ramon Navarro was cute, a lovable, love-struck scamp, and an uninhibited romantic with loads of charm. I lost my career today, but I don't care. I'm happy. Today, I found the most glorious girl in the whole world. Nothing about Navarro spoke of menace or danger. Today, I found love. Ironically, Navarro reached his peak in popularity at a time when prejudice towards Mexican immigrants had become extremely common. Mexicans had been welcomed as cheap labor to the U.S., but at the same time, they were resented, and Hollywood's depictions of handlebarred banditos in westerns were at least partially to blame. Whether Valentino and Navarro were sensations because or in spite of being immigrants is hard to say. But the studios consciously avoided casting either of them as their native nationalities. To audiences, they were simply acceptably exotic celebrities. Now, until 1934, Navarro was one of the world's biggest stars, one of the few to straddle silent films and talkies. Then two things happened. Hollywood turned toward more stoic, traditionally manly men, like Clark Gable and Gary Cooper, for its romantic male leads. That was not Navarro. At the same time, the old-fashioned operettas that had made Navarro so popular fell out of fashion in favor of newer-sounding musicals led by the likes of Fred Astaire. Can't you see? I'm longing to be in this place. Won't you change partners and dance with me? One final MGM musical, The Night is Young, in 1935, cemented the end for Navarro. with buttered noodles and apple strudels. I've ordered apple strudels. with apple strudels. I love you. Listen, I happen to love both Wiener Schnitzel and Apple Strudel, but this movie gave me indigestion. It tanked with both critics and audiences, and MGM fired Navarro. Navarro had had a good run, make that a great run. He lived comfortably over the next few decades, even helping to take care of his many siblings and their families, having smartly invested his money in real estate. Oh, I feel very fortunate because... Uh... I know people that have certainly much more intelligence than I had, and intelligence and uh, uh, ability, and yet I've been fortunate in uh, investing my money rightly. Ramon Navarro's legacy would likely be his very real early stardom, if not for the way he died. At the age of 69, Navarro was murdered in his Hollywood home on October 30th, 1968, by two male hustlers. The details are lurid, and we're not going to get into them here. But the general circumstances of his death and the trial that followed revealed to the world what Hollywood insiders had long known. Navarro was gay. 
As a young star, he had refused to give in to studio pressure to marry a woman. In his early days, he'd had a few relationships. But as he grew older, biographer Andre Suarez believes, Navarro had become less self-accepting and found it harder to reconcile his Catholic faith with his sexuality. He drank to excess, and he paid for sex. When he eventually lost his driver's license, Navarro's secretary would drive him to church. If Navarro noticed a handsome young man walking on the sidewalk, he would quickly cross himself. At the trial of his murderers, the defense attorney victim-blamed, saying contemptuously to the jury, back in the days of Valentino, this man who set female hearts aflutter was nothing but a queer. Navarro, he argued, had invited this upon himself. Sadly, in 1968, that was a compelling argument. Neither murderer served more than nine years for this crime. Posthumously, Navarro's name fell further into disgrace thanks to Hollywood Babylon. Hollywood Babylon is a book by a man named Kenneth Anger. And that's pretty much where the facts end. It's a tacky and tasteless compilation of scandals and hearsay about the very first movie stars. And it was a bestseller. The most infamous edition in 1975 included gruesome graphic photos of celebrity deaths. With its litany of lies, Hollywood Babylon ensured that Navarro's death would overshadow his life. When the fabulous MGM retrospectives, That's Entertainment, and its sequel were released in the 1970s, they included dozens of clips from Hollywood's earliest musicals. Navarro was conspicuously absent. At that time, it may have been impossible to honor him properly without invoking his recent troubling demise. And that's a big shame. Here's to remembering Ramon Navarro as he was in his Latin lover heyday with that wonderful warble. Up next, Latin lovers invade television just before their last big hurrah on the silver screen. You know, they're grooming Ricky to be another Rudolph Valentino. Ricky? Uh, Ricky who? <laughs> Ricky me, that's who. <laughs> you! Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The studio just said to go over and have my picture taken with Ricky Ricardo, whoever he is. <laughs> oh, haven't you met him? He's a handsome Latin with an accent. He's the end, the living end. <laughs> By the 1950s, the whole idea of the Latin lover had become something of a punchline on TV. Ricardo Alberto Fernando Ricardo Yacha. <laughs> 
I Love Lucy's Ricky Ricardo, as played by Desi Arnaz, was hardly dangerous. This Latin lover was safely domesticated. What a dream situation. And I bet you know a million gals. Where's your address book? I burned it. <laughs> burned it? I hadn't been in this country very long, and Lucy said it was part of the American marriage ceremony. <laughs> Over on the big screen, the Latin lover vehicles of the period were gloriously cheeseball. Here's Mexican heartthrob Ricardo Montalban teaching some poor sap his own seduction technique in 1949's Neptune's Daughter. You must say to her, Bésame mi amor con todo el fuego de tu corazón. Why do I have to speak Spanish? Because it's a language of love. Oh. Women can't resist it. Not surprisingly, Montalban didn't like being typecast, as he later recalled in a CBS interview. But I didn't know what it meant, you see, Latin lover. I, uh, it meant a man, I guess, according to Hollywood, <clears throat> with slick hair, nastily dressed and uh, kissing ladies' hands, you know, and uh, it was a caricature, so I, I, I kind of resented it. They were vapid roles. Perhaps the most successful of the Latin lovers of this period, and one of the last, was dapper debonair Fernando Lamas. Aren't you rather forgetting yourself? Maybe. I always forget myself, senorita, when I'm near a beautiful woman. Neither dangerous like Valentino nor boyish like Navarro, Lamas was instead a smooth operator. Come to my home tomorrow, and I will show you the real gold of California. The sweet-smelling hay and the plums and the grapes and the fat cattle and the pigs. Do you like pigs, Lady Loverly? I've met so few. At the height of his popularity, Fernando married movie star and businesswoman Arlene Dahl, a Minnesotan of Norwegian descent. The couple were expecting a child when they spoke to Edward R. Murrow on Person to Person. Have you picked a name for the baby? Uh, not not uh, yet. We have in mind a couple of uh, names, but uh, it's not quite easy, is it? No, it's not easy. You see, both my father and Fernando want a boy, so we've been concentrating only on boys' names. That's right. You see, it's got to go with the, the name Lamas, and I don't think that, for example, Sam Lamas would really go <laughs> together, you know. They did not name their son Sam. As much as I was stereotyped as a jock, Dad was stereotyped as a Latin lover. That's actor and son of Fernando, Lorenzo Lamas. And he told me it's good to be stereotyped and have steady work than to not be stereotyped and go without having the phone ring for months at a time. Lorenzo would go on to have his own movie and TV career. I first came to know him for his work on the nighttime soap Falcon Crest. You created Falcon Crest in your own image, grandmother. My mother and I are the way we are because of you, and if I've turned against you, it's your own fault. You get out of my sight. <laughs> I really think the Latin lover was introduced to the American audience to give people a chance to look at an emotional man, a man that is not afraid to show his feelings. Fernando Lamas was discovered in his native Argentina by an MGM talent scout. He was of a group of people like Cesar Romero and Ricardo Montalban that were brought to the studio system to play that kind of, that spoiler. The Latin lover that comes into the storyline and kind of breaks up the couple. And they would play the continental suave, you know, sophisticated man about town. How many men have told you 
that you are the most beautiful girl they have ever seen. Fernando took to the Latin lover role on screen and off. Movie star and champion swimmer Esther Williams would become his fourth wife. She later recalled the first time they met. You tell me something, Fernando. You have a terrible reputation. Do you still have a lot of fooling around to do? And he said, such an honest question deserves an honest answer. He says, I'm afraid I do. And I said, you'll kill me. I said goodbye to him. I never saw him for eight years. By the late 50s, Fernando was eager to leave the on-screen part of the role behind. I'm very happy to say that I'm walking away from one role that I seem to be stuck with in quite a number of my pictures in Hollywood. That's what I call the Latin lover type of a role, which is one-dimensional. You know, only calls for a sword in one hand, a blonde dame on the other, and a horse waiting outside. That's all. Black hair and long teeth. And indeed, by the end of the decade, the Latin lover had largely vanished from the big screen. But much to the dismay of Lamas, this didn't lead to better opportunities, as he later explained to Johnny Carson. Under 1960, no foreign man is allowed to play a leading role. Like if we had an operation of something. You know? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. You have an operation, so you cannot make love anymore. So now you play the friend of the leading man, who is some dumb guy from Topeka, or, <laughs> or you play the heavy. The Latin lover was being replaced by the Latin criminal, all too often the urban gang member. Vaya, mami, ¿qué pasa? Collection time. Okay, girl, come on. Go on, mama, get the money ready. Man needs some bread. Former movie star Latin lovers had to turn elsewhere for work. My dear guests, I am Mr. Rourke, your host. Welcome to Fantasy Island. Ricardo Montalban became the star of TV's Fantasy Island, where I would watch him every Saturday night. Smiles, everyone. Smiles. No longer cast as a romantic lead, he was also, during commercial breaks, romancing car seats. Cordoba, the new small Chrysler. Here is the warmth of thickly cushioned contour seats, available even in fine Corinthian leather. By the way, fine Corinthian leather is a marketing term, not any actual type of leather. As for Fernando Lamas, he turned to directing for television. He directed Lorenzo in several episodes of Falcon Crest. Fernando's name and fame slowly faded until pop culture twice turned the spotlight back on him. It's time now for Fernando's Hideaway. And that was the last time that I saw Gary Cooper. Saludos, my friends. I'm so happy to be here tonight. In the recurring Saturday Night Live segment, Fernando's Hideaway, Billy Crystal parodied the Elder Lamas, inspired, says Lorenzo, by an appearance Fernando had made on The Tonight Show. And Billy was watching Dad the way he was on Johnny Carson, and Dad came in and appeared, and he had a little bit of a cult. Johnny said, so, Fernando, I understand you're a little under the weather tonight. He goes, yes, Johnny, I'm a little under the weather, I'm not, you know, feeling too marvelous, but it's always better to look good than to feel good, right? I would rather look good than to feel good. You know what I'm saying to you, darling? Barbara, you look marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. 
come out with, eh? Thank you. You look pretty good yourself. Well, thank you, darling. I'm blushing inside. My temperature... Dad loved it because Billy was introducing my father to an audience of people that didn't know who he was. By the way, there really was a Fernando's hideaway. In that appearance on Person to Person back in 1957, Fernando led Edward R. Murrow on a tour through his Manhattan townhouse and to his man cave. This is uh, the room where you got away from it all, is that That's right? That's why, definitely. What? You know, I think a man once in a while has to be alone with himself. And what, what's uh, the sign just beside you there? Is it? Oh, uh, the sign here says exactly Fernando's hideaway is the picture of a bullfighter, you see? Fernando Lamas died in 1982, but another tribute of a sort came posthumously in a popular beer campaign in 2006. In a past life, he was himself. If opportunity knocks and he's not home, opportunity waits. He gave his father the talk. He is the most interesting man in the world. Character actor Jonathan Goldsmith, a good friend of Fernando's, auditioned for a commercial for Dos Equis beer. And the, the character that Dos Equis was looking for was some sort of a Latin lover type. Goldsmith, a self-described Jewish guy from the Bronx, summoned the spirit of his beloved lost friend. The most interesting man in the world was basically from Jonathan's memory of the times that he spent with Dad. Running in place will never get you the same results as running from a lion. Fernando Lamas was never entirely able to shake the Latin lover label. His New York Times obituary, dated October 9th, 1982, starts off, Fernando Lamas, the silver-haired star of numerous Latin lover movies died today of cancer. He was 67 years old. There's a new star in heaven tonight. When you realize that Valentino was Italian, he invented the leading man. And he came on and he invented the thing and he dressed himself funny and body caught on. And then there were a lot of foreigners that followed. We've left the Latin lover behind us. And as with most all stereotypes, that's for the best. But let's also acknowledge that the Latin lover allowed foreigners to be leading men for the first time. And while it's rare to see someone marketed as a Latin lover today, some of his better aspects have been absorbed, assimilated into today's leading men of all ethnicities. Even the most macho man must now also have some emotional awareness and vulnerability. Yes, behind each posturing, chest-thumping bro in Magic Mike, there's a surprisingly sensitive guy who just wants to be loved. I'm not my lifestyle. I'm not... Am I Magic... Am I I Magic Mike right now talking to you? I'm not my goddamn job. That's not who... That's not what I... That's not what I do. That's... I mean, it is what I do, but it's not who I am. Sure, every once in a while, somebody bemoans the loss of the stoic leading man. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, what they didn't know was once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. But there's no going back. Hey, not for nothing. But you're getting a little confused here. That was the movies. 
There's a new star in heaven tonight. I certainly hope you enjoyed this mobituary. May I ask you to please rate and review the podcast? You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moraka. Listen to Mobituaries on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. And might I suggest Mobituaries Great Lives Worth Reliving, the New York Times bestselling book, now available in paperback and audiobook. It includes plenty of stories not in the podcast. And I gotta say, it's kind of a perfect stocking stuffer. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Francisco Robina and Aaron Schrank. Our team of producers also includes Wilco Martinez-Cachero and me, Mo Rocca. It was edited by Maura Walls and engineered by Josh Hahn, with fact-checking by Naomi Barr. Our production company is Neon Hum Media. Our archival producer is Jamie Benson. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. Indispensable support from Craig Swagler, Dustin Gervais, Alan Peng, Reggie Bazile, and everyone at CBS News Radio. Special thanks to Andre Suarez, Matias Antonio Bambal, Laura Isabel Serna, and Alberto Robaina. The unsinkable Aaron Schrank is our senior producer. Executive producers for Mobituaries include Steve Razies and Moraka. The series is created by yours truly. And as always, undying gratitude to Rand Morrison and John Carp for helping breathe life into mobituaries. Before we go, Hollywood also had its female Latin lovers. The pioneering and stunning Dolores Del Rio was Ramon Navarro's second cousin. Del Rio was often called the female Rudolph Valentino. She and her contemporary Lupe Velez paved the way for other Latin actresses like Carmen Miranda and Maria Montez. The storied history of those Latin lovers is its own tale, deserving its own future mobituary. Think you like that? Very much. You like that too? Well, of course I'm willing if everyone else is. <laughs> you want to know what I think? Yeah. ¿A qué te vas a hacer eso que están creyendo? Que yo me casé para esto, para predarse a usted? No, señor, los has tocado de perros. Yeah, I wish I could. I could. You don't say that in English. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. <laughs> I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.